Hello, my name is Hank Belfield. I'm the pastor of Providence Presbyterian Church in Chilhowee, Virginia. And I'm Jay Bennett. I'm pastor at Neon Reform Presbyterian Church in Neon, Kentucky. And I'm Corey Page, a student of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And together, we're the Geneva Mountain Boys. We want to welcome you to this next episode of our podcast as we continue to make our way through the Apostles' Creed together. Last time we met, we talked about the forgiveness of sins. And today, we're moving on to a section of the Apostles' Creed, which we might rightly refer to as the eschatology of the Apostles' Creed, in which we talk about the future of what believers might expect. We have a confidence that there is more to this life than simply the here and now, that there are things yet to come. And in this mindset, we affirm in the Apostles' Creed the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now today we're going to focus on the first of that, the resurrection of the body. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, this truth. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And there the Apostle Paul uses sleep as a metaphor, a way of euphemistically talking about death. And he's alluding to the fact that as Jesus was raised from the dead, something we talked about earlier in our series on the Apostles' Creed, so those who are in him shall rise in like manner from the sleep of death to a resurrection life. And so Christians have affirmed for centuries a firm belief in the resurrection of the body. Now, uh, brothers, let's talk a little bit about this because uh, as I know both of you are well aware, and may, many of our listeners may be aware, this doctrine of bodily resurrection, particularly of Christ's resurrection, but by extension even the resurrection of believers in Christ, is something that came into question in the early 1900s in the fundamentalist modernist controversy, where people were redefining what Christianity was. And because of a growing sense of trust in the scientific method and distrust in the supernatural belief that Christianity had always affirmed, there was a denial of several key doctrines, or perhaps a better way of putting it, a redefining of those doctrines. And the resurrection was one of them. Uh, there was a, a denial of the bodily resurrection. But here the Apostles' Creed is quite clear. We believe and affirm in the resurrection, notice explicitly, of the body. So is this struggle that we have with the idea of a bodily resurrection something new, or is it something that we've seen before uh, beyond what I've mentioned in the early 1900s? Oh, it's definitely a, a struggle that was uh, a part of the experience of the church in its earliest days, the New Testament church, at least, in its earliest days, um, but for a different reason. You know, I, I haven't thought about this before until you started talking about the fundamentalist modernist controversy, Hank, and the way that theological liberalism, also known as modernism at the time, denied the resurrection of the body, the physical resurrection of Christ, as well as the resurrection of believers you know, the, the modernist denial of the resurrection was based on the rejection of the supernatural. 
the early church faced something that was really just the opposite, but it led to the same conclusion. <laughs> the early church faced a threat from a false teaching called Gnosticism, and what Gnosticism taught, at least broadly speaking, and there were different forms of Gnosticism, was that the material world was bad and the spiritual world was good. And so the goal of life is to reach a point of transcending all that's material and entering into a purely spiritual existence. So if you go with that kind of a theory of reality and a theory of eschatology, then you end up with a rejection of the resurrection as well, although for different reasons. So the church faced the Gnostic threat uh, from its earliest days. You can even see this in the writings of the apostles. Uh, I think First John is a good example of uh, some early, very, very early Gnostic teachings that were making their way into the church. Um, the apostle John's very clear in that letter that uh, the false teachers, whom he calls the spirit of the Antichrist, uh, what is the falsehood that they're teaching? And it, it is the, the denial of the flesh of Christ. So they deny that the Son of God came in the flesh. In other words, they deny his full humanity. This is related to a Christological heresy of the day that was uh, known as docetism. He only appeared to have a human body. So, yeah, this is a, something that the church has struggled with from the beginning, really, uh, that, that idea of the value of the physical body, and, and is it part of what Christ was sent into the world mm -hmm. to redeem? And, and the, the orthodox answer to that question, the, the true, the right answer to that question, according to Scripture, is, is most certainly uh, Christ became human in every sense, both materially and, uh, and immaterially, body and soul, and he was raised from the dead bodily as the first fruits, as you mentioned in the text you read, Hank, of a resurrection of all those who have believed in him on the last day. So. Mm -hmm. And just for our listeners, if you want to learn more about us uh, speaking about Christ's humanity, uh, in our previous episodes of the Apostles' Creed, we do discuss this more at length when we discuss who is conceived by the Holy Ghost born of the Virgin Mary. Oh, yeah. So please go back to that if, you, if you're skipping around with the Apostles' Creed and haven't followed us through from one episode to the other. Please go back to that episode and as we discuss about Christ's humanity. Mm -hmm. So um, what we see here is there's a connection. There's a connection in the creed between Jesus' resurrection and what we're encountering here, the bodily resurrection of those in Christ. We see that more importantly, in Scripture, which is why I chose the verse that I did to start us off, because there's a clear parallel. Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So let's, let's talk a little bit now about why affirming, as the Creed does, the bodily resurrection of believers is so important. And obviously, there's going to be some connection with Christ's resurrection, and we talked about this earlier when we covered that portion of the creed that spoke of Christ rising from the dead. But nevertheless, um, is it important to affirm a bodily resurrection? Or, or can we, like some modernists have done, spiritualize it, as, as silly as that may sound, but, but say, well, you know, I believe that we go on in spirit, but we live on in spirit, but we don't actually physically rise from the dead. 
We can't because Scripture doesn't allow us to. Uh, for example, in Isaiah 26, verse 19, it says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So in no way is this a poetry or something to say that, oh, it'll appear as though our bodies will rise. No, our physical bodies will rise from the grave on the last day. And just as on the third day, Christ physically rose from the dead. The the apostles touched his side. They touched his hands. John in 1 John says that he saw him. He touched him. Mm-hmm. Um, for 40 days after his resurrection, people talked to him and saw him and touched him and saw him eat and mm-hmm. and all these things. And on that last uh, of the 40 days, he physically rose to the throne of his father David in heaven. And so we can't uh, divorce um the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or the bodily resurrection of believers because Scripture simply cannot allow us to. Okay, so one one reason that we, we are not at liberty to deny the bodily resurrection is perhaps the most important one, and that is the, the Word of God says so, that there will be a physical resurrection. But are there other reasons that we could cite as to why affirmation of a bodily resurrection of believers is so vital? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I was thinking in terms of the creation account. And, you know, in the beginning, God didn't create an immaterial world mm-hmm. apart from a physical world, but he created it both an immaterial and a material world together, the heavens and the earth, the invisible and the visible. This is going back, of course, to what the creed says at the beginning. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, right? I don't know if that's in the Apostles. Is that the Apostles or the Nicene? I I mix those up often, but I know the Nicene Creed says visible and invisible. Yes. Uh, And there you're getting into, well, there's material, there's material world, and there's also uh, an invisible uh, spiritual or immaterial world. And so God created humanity. We read in Genesis 2, he formed the body of Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You see both the material aspect and the immaterial there Mm. in that creation account. When the whole creation is finished and the creation, again, including humanity, has a material aspect, God declares that it's good. It's all good. So given the goodness of the material creation, it it doesn't make any theological sense to think that, you know, God created this material world so that it might shed its materiality. I think you also see in the promise that God held out to Adam, he held out to him the promise of eternal life. And well, what would, what would that eternal life have looked like? Well, it would have been a glorified existence to enter into the glorified estate with, God, but that that doesn't mean Adam would have shed his materiality, that he would have become only immaterial. No, and and we see this quite clearly in the fact that what Adam forfeited when he fell was that eternal life, and what he received was death, and that death didn't just have a spiritual component to it, but it also had a material component. Okay, so, so we've established that one of the reasons we must affirm a bodily resurrection it's because the Bible explicitly says so. Uh, number two, we're affirming a bodily resurrection just on a pragmatic or theological level. 
because God's not only made the immaterial, he's made the material. How about in the area of, of soteriology or, or the doctrine of salvation? Are, are there any reasons why affirmation of a bodily resurrection is so very important? Yeah, Paul, Paul gets into this in 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve through 19. He says, um, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. So there's the church and the work of the church. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. So you see the, the apostle there connecting our salvation and particularly the forgiveness of sins. He says, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So the bodily resurrection and affirming the bodily resurrection is absolutely crucial to understanding and to affirming the forgiveness of sins. And I I think this is one reason why you have this kind of procession in the final three articles of the Apostles' Creed from the forgiveness of sins. So there's dealing with that spiritual component, that covenantal legal component, the forgiveness of sins, then the resurrection of the body. There's more of that transformative component finding its culmination, which that transformative component, component that began in our spiritual resurrections, in our progressive sanctification, but finds its culmination in the resurrection of the body. That's when we enter into the glorified estate, both body and soul, and then moving on from there into the life everlasting, which is thinking in terms of eternal life, uh, glorified existence with God forever, fellowship with him forever, the beatific vision, all of those sorts of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, brothers, we, we've been speaking about... Um, our resurrection, but the first the first fruits was of course Jesus who rose from the dead. Could you men speak about Jesus's resur- or his death, what happened to him after his death, leading up to his resurrection, and then to his ascension and where he is now? Can you walk us through that because it'll give us insight about our own resurrection? Well, uh, you know there there is this reality that it, Jesus comes into this world; he takes upon himself a body the incarnation and he lives in the condition of being under the law and having the confinements and restrictions that being in a body has he's fully god he's fully man he suffers the the pains and the miseries of this life and uh, he endures the shameful death of the cross out of obedience to the father and bodily rises on the third day the tomb is empty and as you've already noted, Corey, he appears to his disciples, and he doesn't just appear as an apparition. He tells them quite clearly in, in Luke 24, for instance, uh, don't doubt, uh, reach forth your hands, touch me, see that it is I. He shows them the wounds, and uh, he beckons them to give him something to eat. So he eats in front of them to demonstrate that he has a physical subsistence as well as a spiritual. And yet that physical subsistence seems to have something new about it because he can just seemingly appear and disappear. Um, And he comes into a locked room without having to go through the door. 
So in one sense, it's still his body, and in another sense, it, it has new qualities about it. And after he teaches his disciples for a period of time, uh, instructing them more fully, uh, he is taken up before them. We read about this in the book of Acts, chapter 1. Body and soul and received into a Shekinah cloud of glory. And the angels appear as they stare into heaven and say, uh, Why do you stand here continuing to look into heaven? This Jesus whom you've seen depart from you will in like manner return. Now, in the interim, between his ascension and his second coming, uh, we have his session at God's right hand, what theologians call his session at God's right hand, which just simply means sitting down. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And, of course, the right hand is a a place of honor. And uh, Peter tells us quite clearly in Acts chapter 2 that that sitting at God's right hand is actually his enthronement, that Jesus' resurrection and ascension to God's right hand is the moment that he sits upon the throne of David. And between his ascension and his second coming, he subdues all his and our enemies. And the kingdom of God, like a mustard seed, is growing uh, by the power and the grace of God. And it comes to its consummation at the second coming when he separates the sheep from the goats. Hmm. And um, those who are his people enter into the bliss of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know if that's what you were going at. Uh, I guess, too, I wanted to highlight the intermediate state of believers. And also to speak about with Christ, when he was in the grave, uh, was was his soul asleep in his body? Uh, Where was he? We don't believe in soul sleep. Certainly the Bible uses the analogy of sleep, but we believe that that's a reference to the body, which appears to the eye to be asleep. The eyes are closed, and um, out of deference and respect, the body is usually placed in a very comfortable-looking position as if one is simply resting. And so sleep is, is not only the picture of peace and rest, but it's also the reality that they're not truly dead. They will open their eyes again and, and come back as Jesus came back. Now, there, there's some debate within the, the course of, of, of Christian history as to what happens with Christ's spiritual subsistence during the three days. And some argue that the descent into hell happens at this time. Now, we've talked about that. And most of us believe and affirm that Jesus, his soul, goes to be with the Father. And part of the reason we affirm that is because Jesus himself says, as he expires on the cross, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. Now, some people see that as simply saying, I commit myself to you, and that's, that's all he means. But others would view it as, as soul and body are separated, his soul goes to be back with the Father. But his body remains in the grave. And Jesus even says, after his resurrection, I've not yet ascended to my Father. Uh, and there it seems he's talking more about his body, though some would argue his soul as well. So, I mean, there's debate as to whether or not his soul descended into hell and then led captivity captive or whether he went right back to the Father in spirit. But in general terms, the idea is that when his body and soul were separated, the body was in the earth, and uh, his soul goes back to the Father temporarily until the resurrection. And I think that's what you're alluding to here, that there's a correspondence, a parallel for us in this intermediate state. He also tells the believing thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Correct. I don't think we have any reason to interpret today to mean anything other than that literal day. So the, the moment he expired, his soul entered into the intermediate state. His human soul was glorified along with the human soul of the 
believing thief, although both of their bodies were placed in graves, well, assuming that the thief's body was placed in a grave. Um, certainly right. Christ's body was placed in a grave and saw no corruption. Right. But we so, have to be clear we have to be clear here. When we talk about the ascension proper, we're not talking about Jesus' soul going back to the Father. We're talking about when he rose from the dead. Right. Uh, body and soul. Uh, it's that moment in, in Acts chapter one where he's received up into heaven. Yeah. That's the ascension. That's right. Uh, so, when we talk theologically about it. Right. So Jay, with all that in mind, what does it mean for us if we are Christians? How do, should we view our bodies after death? And yeah, where where do our souls go when we die? Mm-hmm. And um, when Jesus returns on that last day, what does that mean for our glorified bodies and our glorified souls? Right. That's a great question. Well, uh, the first thing to remember is how are we saved? We are saved by faith union with Christ. So the, the blessings of life and salvation are ours through that faith union. And that union is not merely the union of our souls with Christ, but it's the union of our bodies with Christ. It's the union of our, the totality of our being with Christ. All of who we are is united to Christ. So the moment we die, we expire, our souls united to Christ are glorified, in the heavenly estate, this is called the intermediate state because it's, it's not something that continues forever. This intermediate state continues until the second coming of Christ. So our souls ascend into heaven. Our souls are uh, glorified. We are with Jesus in the heavenly place. Our bodies remain on earth in the grave, but our bodies are still united to Christ. It's not that our true selves have have ascended into the heavenly realm and our and you know and, and it's just the husk of our bodies is left behind. It's not that because our bodies are just as much a part of our true selves as our souls are. And our bodies do remain united to Christ. Mm-hmm. And the the imagery of sleeping, I think, is very important here. You know, the Bible uses sleeping imagery as Hanks mentioned to talk about death, but it only uses it with respect to believers. It never speaks of unbelievers sleeping in death. So, so this idea of sleeping, it, it's the idea of going to the grave in a, in a secure state, in a restful state. So we go to the grave entering into the eternal rest that has been won for us through the work of Christ. The unbeliever goes to the grave like he's entering into a prison cell awaiting execution on death row. That's not a restful estate at all. The unbeliever, when he dies, his body remains outside of Christ and therefore outside of an estate of rest, and his soul descends into hell. And again, that's an intermediate estate. And all of that's looking forward to, and then, by the way, that parallels Christ's own intermediate estate Mm -hmm. uh, from the time of his death while his body remained in the grave until his resurrection. Our resurrection will come, our bodily resurrection will come at this at the last day, at Christ's second coming. And not, not only ours, not only the resurrection of believers, but the resurrection of unbelievers as well. So Paul says in Acts chapter 24, verse 15, he talks about the resurrection of the just and the unjust. So everyone is raised on the last day bodily, uh, but believers are raised up bodily to enter into glory bodily 
and that's their eternal state. Um, not an intermediate state, but an eternal state. And unbelievers are raised up bodily to enter into their eternal state, which is not glory, but an estate of curse and wrath and condemnation in a state of utter reprobation. Yeah, I was thinking as you were talking there, Jay, about Jesus's own words in John chapter five, uh, there he speaks about the resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. Now he, he also talks about a, a spiritual resurrection. So mm-hmm. we, but I don't want to muddy the waters here because here the confession or the, excuse me, the creed is, is clearly talking about the resurrection of the body. Right. But um, in regards to that, uh, Jesus makes it clear. He says in verse 28 of chapter 5 of John's gospel, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Yeah. So he, he's very explicit there that all will be raised bodily. Mm-hmm. But the resurrection bodily will be unto two different estates. And so Jesus becomes this grand archetype, mm-hmm. as Paul says, That's right. the first fruits mm-hmm. of what believers can expect in their resurrection. Yeah. But as Jay is pointing out, there's a, there's a qualitative difference in the resurrection of, of the wicked. Mm-hmm. Because they're not raised to glory, they're raised to condemnation. Mm-hmm. They're not raised to enjoy the bliss of eternal life, uh, they're raised to the reality of God's eternal judgment. But there's also some confusion, I think, sometimes about the nature of that body. Now, I've already made comment about how when Jesus was risen from the dead, he had different qualities about his resurrection body, but it was the same body. And here I'm thinking about how someone might take the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he talks about being given a tent or a house not made with hands. Mm -hmm. In um, verses 1 through, let's say 1 through 5, Paul writes these words, Mm -hmm. For we know that our earthly house, this tent, if it's destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, meaning this earthly body, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And I can imagine someone reading that set of verses and saying, well, you know, when I die, yes, my my soul separates from my body, and yes, there's going to be a resurrection, but the resurrection body is going to be a different body than the one that's sown in the ground, because Paul talks about a, a heavenly tent made without hands. Mm-hmm. So just maybe your brothers could share some comments there. Is, is that what Paul means? Is Is he talking about something you mentioned earlier, Jay, that these bodies are sort of discarded as a husk? and that God gives us a new physical body that's different from our own bodies? Or is it these bodies that we currently have? I I think the answer is yes and no. So again, so remember um, in the last podcast on the forgiveness of sins, I mentioned that uh, sin is not only an action, it's also a state of being. 
And Hank, you were very quick to say, now we have to be careful there. And I, I think you're exactly right. We have to be careful there because to be a human being is not to be a sinner. So we're not saying that sin is essential to the human nature, is a part of the human nature, essentially speaking. But we're talking about a state of that nature, uh, a state of being in which all in Adam are born. So so when we think about the body, the body can also exist in different estates. The human body is the human body, and it's it's the same body regardless of what estate it's in, just like the human being is the same human being regardless of what estate he's in. Nonetheless, the estate of glory is different from the estate of grace or the estate of sin, or even the estate of innocence. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, to, to highlight, to remember. Oh, go ahead. Uh, to highlight this, Thomas Boston's book, The, the Fourfold State of Man, he mentions four states. Yeah, he mentions the state of innocence, uh, the state of nature, the state of grace, and if I recall, it was the last one, the state of glory. Yeah, that's right. I believe so. Uh, There's other terms he's used to before. But the state of innocence, when God created man, he created him with the ability to not sin. Mm -hmm. So he's mutable. So he's able to sin, but he is able not to sin. Mm -hmm. When we fell, mankind fell into the state of nature, which makes them that he's only able to sin. He is not able not to sin. But by God's grace, the Christian is renewed in their minds, and they've been transformed back to in a state of innocence, which we call the state of grace, in the sense of that now they are able not to sin. We have victory over the power of sin, yet we still can sin. But in this state of glory that we're talking about, the final uh, state of, of believers, is that we are not able to sin anymore. Mm-hmm. And those who love God would should rejoice at this to know that we in the new heavens and the new earth, even in the intermediate state, our souls will be glorified and we will be uh, we will not be able to sin. We will only do what is pleasing in His sight. We will love Him perfectly as He should be. And with uh, the resurrection of the body, when our souls are joined back to our bodies, they'll be made to where that we cannot sin ever again. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, taking so th- those terms, able to sin, able not to sin, uh, that's thinking of the, the estates in terms of uh, our spiritual existence, right. in, in terms of, of our immaterial nature, and particularly in terms of our moral ability or lack thereof. You could, you could also think about the fourfold estate, which goes back all the way to St. Augustine. Um, you could also think about the fourfold estate right. in terms of the body. And if you think about it in terms of the body, the issue is mortality, mortality. So in the estate of innocence, Adam was mortal. Adam had the ability to die. And we see that come to fruition when he sins against God and dies. So the threat in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die would be meaningless if Adam didn't have a mortal body. Adam did eat from the tree, and he did receive the penalty of death. So it has to do with mortality. In the estate of sin, of course, the body is still mortal. The estate of glory is an estate of immortality for the body. The body is no longer able to die. So I I think that that's where I would want to focus the attention when I'm thinking about the distinction between 
a glorified body and a non-glorified body. I hear what you're saying about Jesus appearing in the room, but there again, I, I don't know that that necessarily has to do with the the metaphysics of his glorified body, because of course, Philip was transported by the spirit with a body that was only in the state of grace with a non-glorified body. His body was transported by the spirit to appear, you know, in a place where he needed to be at the time. So I, I don't know that I'd necessarily say that's a function of the glorified body, although maybe so. I, I know that there, there are, there are certainly uh, theologians who would say that. Um, Jay, I want to walk through walls, man. Don't, yeah, I mean, the, that's, the, you know, the, te- the text doesn't say that he walked through the wall. It just says he appeared, right? right. He appeared. Now, now, if, if it said something about him walking through the wall, then that now that would be something that we'd have to, I think, definitely say. Wait just a minute now. Yeah, <laughs> so, my my point in, in quoting from the Corinthians passage is simply to raise the issue that I I think there are a lot of people who have this idea. Jay, you touched on it earlier in a comment you made where you were talking about the intermediate state, I think people have a tendency to think yeah. when we die, we yeah. cast these bodies off. Yeah. And in that sense, whether we realize it or not, we've kind of embraced a form of Gnosticism. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Not in the sense that we see matter necessarily as evil, but we've, we've sort of gotten this, this Gnostic idea that the real me yeah. is, the is the immaterial me, and that the physical aspect of my constitution is just a temporary thing. Yeah. And I think going back to your earlier comment about God creating the physical world, not just the spiritual realm, is so vitally important. When Christ redeems, he redeems all of me, mm-hmm. not just the immaterial aspect of my constitution, but the physical as well. Yeah. It's not an either-or proposition, it's a both-and. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, we have to understand that the bodily resurrection is so vitally important, not only because it parallels Jesus's bodily resurrection, the tomb was empty, but that these bodies are just as important to Christ as our souls. And so, you know, I, I cringe a little bit, though I, I understand the intent. People are very well-meaning when they say this, and I'm, I'm not trying to cast aspersions here. But I cringe a little bit when I hear people say things like, well, when I die, you know, don't weep for me because that's not me in that casket. Mm. I'm in heaven. And, of course, what they mean by that is simply that their consciousness, their soul has gone to be with the Lord. And, and there's good reason to believe that. I think about in Revelation how the martyrs stand before the Lord and are given the white robes and they cry out to God. So I get it. But when Jesus comes back, he's not just going to bring back our immaterial part and say, it's all good. Mm. <laughs> He's going to raise these bodies. Now, these bodies are raised, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, just as a seed is sown in the ground, and it springs up to a plant. And that plant has different qualities than the seed, but yet it comes from the seed. It, it is the outgrowth of that seed. It's not wholly other, but it has new attributes. And, and that's what I was getting at with it. We don't want to interpret Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5 as if to say, we sort of throw these bodies aside like old, dirty clothes, and then God gives us a new body that's separate from these. Right. Rather, it's that he glorifies these. Mm-hmm. He raises these very self-same bodies to glory. Mm-hmm. And so the resurrection is our hope mm-hmm. because it's, it's the eternal state, the final state, not the intermediate state where the body and soul are separate. It's the eternal state where body and soul glorified 
are united forevermore to worship, honor, and serve the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, any other parting thoughts or ideas that maybe you men want to share or, or discuss about this doctrine of the bodily resurrection? I'll mention one other thing. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned earlier, Hank, that, I mean, the Bible is very clear about the idea that we've been raised spiritually, right? Ephesians 2, you were dead, but now God has made you alive uh, in Christ Jesus. So why is that not uh, affirmed in the creed? Well, I, I think, you know, just as with the forgiveness of sins, you have a part for the whole kind of idea happening here when it comes to justification. I think you have something similar with the resurrection of the body. Think about the penalty of death that comes by virtue of our sin against God. That penalty of death has both a spiritual component and a physical component, and the spiritual comes first. It's primary. The physical comes afterward, but the physical is really the culmination of the spiritual death. And I think the same, we could say the same with respect to the resurrection. So first, we're just, just as we first spiritually die and then we physically die, so also we first spiritually are raised and then we are physically raised. And that physical resurrection is the culmination of the transformative work of the Spirit, which begins the moment we're converted, the moment we've believed in Christ and we've been changed from within. That transformation happens over time and then we're finally we enter into the estate of glory and that final act of the resurrection of the body that that's everything coming together the final transformation that the spirit has has worked uh in the believer so i think when we affirm the resurrection of the body we are also affirming the resurrection of the soul we that spiritual resurrection that precedes the resurrection of the body it's a part for the whole kind of thing just like the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness. Yeah, there's there's an implication of it. Yeah, there. I think so. I, I think that's implied there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Corey, any final words? I, I won't read it in its entirety, but I would recommend to any of our listeners to open up the Westminster Confession to chapter 32 and to just read those words of all that we've said in this uh, podcast, just a summation of all these glorious doctrines yeah. of... of um, just the resurrection of the body. And uh, I hope that our listeners, just as I am, are looking forward to that final day that we'll stand on the heavenly Mount Zion and the new heavens and the new earth, worshiping God both body with body and soul forever yeah. and ever. Very good. Well, dear listener, I hope you are encouraged by this wonderful doctrine of the resurrection of the body. It's a reminder that there is more than simply what this life holds, that there is something beyond the grave. And with that thought in mind, I'd like to conclude by reading once again from the same chapter I started with, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul writes these words beginning at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Mm -hmm. And so, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? 
O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers, sisters, as you've been listening to this podcast, I hope you find encouragement. May the Lord richly bless you, and may your trust and hope be that as Jesus was raised, you who have put your trust in him will likewise be raised on the last day. I'm Hank Belfield with the Geneva Mountain Boys. Have a good day.